So, yeah, so I definitely did. I definitely did some biking in high school and there were some really nice rides in uh, Western Massachusetts where I grew up. But really what got me into long distance cycling was uh, between before the, my junior year of college, I was living with a friend up in Portland, Oregon, and he said, hey, let's let's bike to school. And that was, you know, in um, at, uh, down in the Bay Area. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so we we did a nine day trip down the Oregon and California coast. And this was back in 2000 or nine. Um, and it was just uh, incredible. And it was just like so much of, a, you know, it was just an incredible way to travel and see things. And uh, on that trip, I met someone who, who there's a lot of people who actually bike on the coast. It's a very popular route for long distance bike tours. And it's a great first bike tour if you're interested in doing something like that. I met someone who was on a trip who had actually had biked the whole length of the Americas. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a cyclist and a data scientist. He has his master's in earth system science from Stanford. He's a director of research and innovation at Global Fishing Watch. We're definitely going to get into that. And he's the author of The Bicycle Diaries. Welcome to the show, David Kruzma. Uh, thank you. David, did I get your last name right? I did not. That's the one thing I forgot to ask you about before we got going. Oh, you, you, said, it, you said it completely correct. Crude okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I uh, got going through your read through, and I was like, that's what I didn't ask him before we got going was clarified <laughs> on the last name. But I was like, I'll take yeah. a shot at it. So um, let's talk cycling. I, It's one of those things where – so I cycle – just because I'm a triathlete, I don't know that I would have really gotten into like road racing or anything. So I, I have some familiarity with the culture and kind of, uh, you know, being in the U S it's a part of every kid's childhood, right? Like we all have bikes at some point, but not very few of us decide to take a 20, 20 plus thousand mile journey, um, <laughs> across the continent. So how did you, get into cycling did you start as a kid what you know where did that journey start so yeah so i definitely did i definitely did some biking in high school and there were some really nice rides in uh, western massachusetts where i grew up but really what got me into long distance cycling was uh between before the, my junior year of college i was living with a friend up in portland oregon and he said hey let's let's bike to school and that was you know in um at, uh, down in the bay area and I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so we, we did a nine day trip down the Oregon and California coast. And this was back in 2000 or nine. Um, and it was just uh, incredible. And it was just like so much of a, you know, it was just an incredible way to travel and see things. And uh, on that trip, I met someone who, who there's a lot of people who actually bike on the coast. It's a very popular route for long distance bike tours. And it's a great first bike tour if you're interested in doing something like that. I met someone who was on a trip who had actually had biked the whole length of the Americas. And he told us about that trip. And it was immediately that idea was in my head. And I knew it was something I would have to do. So, I, I mean, 
why does that moment impact you so much? Because I mean, there I know there are plenty of people that say, you know, they see something and they go, I'd love to do that. Or, that would be awesome. But the follow through, I'm sure you know, the follow through on that kind of like idea is pretty small. Like you've probably met people that, you know, have talked about talked to you about your journey and said, that's really cool. I'd love to do that. But they don't actually do it. So how, how yeah, does that I get think, like that germinated? Yeah, I think. It was an idea, and I, I didn't think I would do it that soon. I thought I would have to go, you know, have a full career first or do other things. But it was this idea that kind of just stuck with me, and I just knew I wanted to do it, and it kept on coming back to it. And it just seemed like the most exciting thing to do. And and the thing about it is it's incredibly cheap. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it doesn't cost – so if you don't um, – you know, the whole cost of biking for a year and a half to the tip of South America is like less than a new car, mm-hmm. a nice new car, right? Or a medium nice new car is, is what it actually costs. And so, you know, the, the, the true cost of it is taking time off of your career to do that, right? So that's right. the actual cost. Um, it's not that it's the opportunity cost, the other things you can do. Um, so you just, you know, I think it's, it's all you need is time and almost anyone can do it. How do you get over that fear of, like you, like you mentioned, the, the kind of opportunity cost of your career, putting that on hold. Um, I, you know, I've spoken to a few people now that have kind of made, I'll say journeys or treks uh, across various terrain and all seem to say it was worth it. But at least in my own mind, if I think about, okay, I'm going to do this, there's this like fear or trepidation or anxiety about like, I'm going to be missing out on something else. Did you experience that or like, how would you suggest getting over that? You know, this is actually very interesting. I've done this twice in my life. So I did this trip from here to, from California, Argentina, uh, when I was in my twenties. And then my wife and I, uh, we took off 10 months in our thirties to do a trip across Asia from Turkey to Istanbul. Uh, and it's very interesting that, that both the response of my friends and the feeling of the trip was very different at those different stages in life. Uh, in my 20s, it was, it was, it just felt like, you know, we had, there was no, like, it was okay to take a year away from my career, because it wasn't like there was a clear next thing I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I thought about going to grad school to get a PhD. Um, and, and in some sense, there was like, kind of that more academic route, which doesn't, would be a little harder to take that year off. But, um, but it, you know, there wasn't like a clear thing. And all of my friends, all of our friends were like, super excited about that trip. When you're across Asia 10 years later, it felt very much like, oh my gosh, we got to be working. We got to be having a family. And our peers who are in their 30s were less, they seemed less envious, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> like people had other things they were doing with their lives. So I yeah. think there is very much a, a state of life there. But I also think there is something worth to be said for, for not, I think we do get too set on the like, this is my track. This is what I have to do. Um, and like, really, what's, what's the point of being here if you're just trying to follow that track? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, is that, is that the big summation of the, the journey, basically? Like, don't be afraid to, to, you know, make that leap to something you want to do. Because otherwise, you know, if you only stay in your own lane, like, what's the point? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think this is different for every person, too. Like, I don't want to be overly prescriptive. You know, I think some of, some of us have an extra or maybe even unhealthy need for a new adventure, Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's some people are probably happier than I am and, and, and just not traveling and, mm-hmm. and doing that. Uh, but I think for some of us, it's it's uh, um, it is, you know, I, I think that the, the fear of it 
should not be the barrier. I, I will add that I think that there are for these types of trips is important to go on. Um, there's a lot of like the, the bike travel thing is also something worth saying. There's a lot of skill to it in terms of how you do it and a lot of familiarity from like fixing tires to knowing where to stay. Mm-hmm. And it was really important before I did that bike trip to Argentina that I'd been along the bike tours first. So, right. My friend and I did that bike trip down the coast and we did a bunch of new ones. And then I actually biked across the country with my dad in 2003, which was, you know, a great, preparation for it mm-hmm. um, so i think i think there's kind of like building those skills but but the funny thing is that i'd never been on a trip by myself until i went out my front door and started biking to argentina and suddenly on the first day i was like oh wow i've never done this by myself i hope i like traveling by myself because i'm going to be <laughs> doing it the next year and a half there's something like that's another it's a fear but like I feel like people that, you know, biking or not biking, you know, however, whatever your mode of travel is, I feel like people that take that leap to go somewhere by themselves have a completely different experience than, you know, if you go with somebody else, loved one or not, you're just, it's your agenda, right? It's, it's what you want to do for the day. Well, I think, I think for the bike touring, so the thing, the thing about bike touring is it's like, like there's a lot of things I love about it. Part of it is the athletic endeavor right like i just i love exercising all day i feel good uh you know i'm it's it's i just like doing it but then it's also it's really the element of kind of like you know seeing the world is is, is kind of a broad way of seeing it but it's really just understanding places it's like you physically get to experience what every mile of road is like and internalize like the contours of the landscape so it's like when you when you bike for a day across the landscape you really understand what the hills are like you really get a sense of what the what the vegetation is like mm-hmm. and yeah sure you'd be better if you're doing it or if you're walking but then you wouldn't be able to cover that you couldn't it's hard, be harder to cover something at a continental scale um but then the other really passing part of it is the um like is the cultural okay because you're you're in this weird space on a bike. You're not really you're in the wilderness. You're in you're places where there's roads. And so you're seeing people and civilization the whole way you go. And, and when you're by yourself, you have very different interactions with people who live along the road than when you're, when you're with a group. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is really important. I found this because on my trip, I actually spent, uh, on my trip to Argentina, I spent a lot of time with, um, I spent a week here, two weeks there, biking with other people. I had friends join me for parts and others. And when I had a friend with me, it was much harder to be invited into strangers' homes. Mm-hmm. Right? It was much easier for people to invite a single person. And I met fewer people. And the trip was more about my interactions with the person I was traveling with than my interactions with the rest of the world. So I think for the bike touring, there was a nice, um, it was really nice traveling alone for that reason. Like I learned more, I, my Spanish got better. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't as lonely as I would have thought I would be. You know, I did a, a modicum of, of solo travel um, a few years ago, and that was kind of my overwhelming experience. Was that you know everybody was friendly, inviting. I was invited over to dinner to essentially new friends, but strangers' house. Um, you know, those kind of things. Whereas, yeah, when I've traveled with other people, it's like. You, I, I don't know if it's, I'm not sure why you, you find that difference. You know, is it a matter of those other people? Are they like, well, I can't accommodate more people or is it, oh, they've already got somebody and thinking like, oh, well, there's a solo traveler, like they need help or I want to help them. You know, like, do you have any thoughts on 
why that happens? Yeah, I think I think it's all of those reasons. Um, I will take a step back from that solo verse and just say it's cycling in general. I think it's really easy for people to help you. Um, and that's what makes it so good because there's this like unique combination of you're both uh, you're both very you're non-threatening, you're very vulnerable, mm-hmm. and people are in, both sympathetic towards you and envious. Mm-hmm. Right? So they both feel bad for you because you're tired, and they wish they were on that journey, seeing what you're seeing. <laughs> and and if you're when you and, and the more and if you're alone, you're much more kind of easy to approach and easy to interact with than if you're a group. Um, I do think it's, I actually think a couple traveling together is very similar to traveling alone. Like it's mm-hmm. like, cause you're, you're a very tangible unit as opposed to that people understand. Whereas you have like two or three guys, then it's, I think it's, it's actually harder. So I found, yeah. I found a couple was, was not, was pretty good still for meeting groups and having to be invited in. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, and that's one of the reasons I love about bike touring is, is that cultural element. Of meeting people and seeing what the world is like and the, and i can't get into that like i could go on and on about this this getting invited to people's homes because it's real and yeah and i think that cycling uniquely allows that because you end up in places where people aren't that used to seeing tourists so they're really distracted to you and you have that like sympathy and envy and wanting to help you thing and so you, over the course of these travels i got invited into you know dozens and dozens of people's houses and even slept in them and and it's a way when you just spend a few hours in someone's home, you, you, you understand what their life is like almost so much better than you could going to work with them every day for a year mm-hmm. or, or other ways. And so it's this like window into how so many people live across several continents. Um, and I just think that's incredible. It, it really kind of gives you a unique perspective, but, but I also think about, you know, there's the admonition. I don't know if you had the slogan when you were growing up. I think you're a couple of years older than me, but um, you know, the whole like stranger danger idea where it's like, don't talk to strangers. And that's, you know, that's what we tell kids. But then really as you grew up and if you take like a solo journey, like talking to strangers is all not the entire point, but a large point, at least for me um, and meeting people you don't know, like how are you going to have these experiences and get invited to people's houses without talking to strangers? So it's like, this kind of odd dichotomy of where, you know, growing up being said, told not to do this and then going and doing that exact thing as you get older. So I think the, the, the danger thing is very interesting. You have to be careful. Like um, there are very dangerous people, people and places, but mm. almost, the vast majority is very safe. Right. And so there's this art of, of, trying to be smart about where you need to be careful if careful of people and not the biggest danger on a bike trip is getting hit by a car far and away right mm-hmm. um but after that you know you, especially in places in latin america and especially central america there are some very dangerous places that, you, that are armed and there are people some and, and you need to be on the lookout for that and so there's there's first there's talking to other bike tourists who have been different places um and then there's always get local knowledge everyone will tell you the next town over the hill is dangerous. Only when they start saying where you are, their town is dangerous, then you start listening. So if they're saying the places where they live is dangerous, so it's really only believe people about where they live. And it's really interesting how everyone's experience is so local. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, you know, and, and I, um, I live in Oakland and, you know, I don't, there are some very dangerous parts of Oakland, but I just don't spend time there. So I can't, 
you know, and that's says as much problems out of Oakland as anything I, I could say for, especially right now. Uh, but my point is I don't actually have that experience. I couldn't actually tell you avoid this street or avoid that one. Mm-hmm. You'd want to actually talk to someone from that side of town. And so our knowledge, everyone's knowledge is very local and it's very hard to get actual knowledge. Um, so think about Columbia. I wanted to bike Columbia back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And everyone's been like, don't bike Columbia, don't bike Columbia. Well, Columbia is the size of Texas and California combined. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there's, very, I, was, I was like, I'm sure there's very safe parts of it and very dangerous parts of it. And I need to find out which is which and, and just avoid it. Because I bet you there's parts of Columbia that are safer than all the rest of my journey. And that's true. There are parts, and I was able to get in contact with people that worked for this. I actually did lots and lots of emails to try to find people who knew which parts to avoid. And, and so you want to, whenever someone has specific advice about like, oh, go here, don't go here, go there, then that demonstrates that knowledge. But people, everyone will say it's don't go there is dangerous. And that usually is not helpful advice. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to back up a little bit. It, what do the logistics look like when you're setting out on this journey? Is it just a matter of like, I got my pack back, I've got my bike, like I'm going to head out the door or is there, is there more like, this is my path. These are where I can stop. This is where I'm going to get food. You know, how much, like how regimented is your, your journey, I guess. But that's a good question. And there's a lot of system to it in terms of knowing the right level of detail to plan. Um, and and it's, 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 this knowledge is interesting. It's something I've basically built up from doing lots of bike touring. And it's hard to explain like exactly, oh, you do this, you carry that. But, but generally the way I, I like to do it is I plan out, okay, in seven days, eight days, I wanna be at this city. And I usually plan out like a few months ahead where we're, where I was going to be and, and roughly. Um, but the, and so like, I look at the map, okay, it's this distance in seven, eight days, I want to be here, but I don't plan where I'm going to stay each day in between. Okay. Uh, except I make sure that it looks like reasonable places I could stay. So if I'm going to go through cities, you need to be able to find, get a hotel or find someone who you can stay with. There's a really great network now for bike touring called warm showers, which is like, couch surfing but just for cyclists so it's uh, i think much better <laughs> you get really good people uh and so that's a good way so you have to email them ahead so you can kind of have places to stay there uh in latin america and the cities i could say i often found i could stay at fire stations i just show up and ask mm-hmm. hey can i stay fire station um and in the countryside you can either find a place to hide a tent or you can make friends with someone and they'll let you camp on their yard or in their house. And oftentimes you'll have this weird density of housing. I only like to camp if I know no one can see me because then it's probably quite safe. That means like only maybe one person or two people will stumble upon me. But if a random person stumbles upon you, the odds that they'll try to do something nefarious is quite low. But if they can see you, then news can get around. So you try to stay hidden. Um, So the countryside either try to hide or you try to make friends and ask someone and the way that works is you approach someone on the road and you ask, hey, is there somewhere I can camp safely? And what happens is usually they'll say, oh, you can go over there, you can go over there. And then you just keep asking people until someone says, oh, you can camp in my yard. Mm. And then, you're, then you'll be safe if you're in someone's yard, you know, because they'll be basically guarding you. And then about half the time they invite you in and half the time they don't. But you have to, um, so uh, that's, that's the key. And it's, it's really, um, it's 
the, the trick is you got to be all self-contained. So basically an hour before sunset, you need to be able to look at the map and think about where you'll end up and see if that's reasonable. Then you need to fill up a water bladder so that you can camp anywhere. So I fill up like, you know, I fill up six to six liters of water in a bladder, maybe 10, depending on where I am and, and to make sure that I can cook and I have my dinner and my breakfast and I have everything I need. So if someone offers me to ask me to camp in their yard, all I'll need is a bathroom and I won't need to use their house for anything. Um, so just to be able to make sure I'm totally self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's, there's, there's tricks like that. And then there's just the being able to decide like, Oh, I think I can camp back there. I can't back here. And then being able to understand what types of people would let you, what types of interactions and landscapes will let you, people will let you camp in their yards. Mm -hmm. and these like i mean it seems like there's a lot of i'll say skills but just ways to think about you know staying safe having a successful successful positive journey like is these things you picked up kind of on those previous smaller treks with your friends with your dad that kind of stuff before heading off on the long mm -hmm. one yeah i think that's it and there's also i mean there's a lot of intelligence about what kind of equipment to carry for this mm -hmm. too like making sure like a really lightweight tent and then what stove to carry and then being able to fix your bike because everything will break down at some point. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you can, um, so being able to, like, everything from fixing tires to chains to uh, that, you know, it's like my chain broke in some random remote road in Columbia that like, I knew I was only supposed to be on during the day because at night you have to worry about the paramilitaries and I had to fix my chain. And like, you know, I was able to do that. Uh, but uh, it's, there, there is a lot of knowledge, but most of the time it's not as high stakes as I just described, and you can't you learn it by doing. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, though, you're talking about your Spanish getting better. Did you have any basis in that, or was that just like I'm bringing a dictionary and I'm going to learn it on the fly? I, I, I had taken it in high school, so I had basic Spanish, but it wasn't very good. Right. Uh, but yeah, there, I spent a lot of work as I was traveling, talking to people and reading. Mm -hmm. My Spanish has deteriorated a lot since then. So I'm not, you know, I, I'd say I was pretty fluent by the end of the trip, but right now I've, I have not, uh, but it's, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, it's, it was interesting too, uh, crossing Asia, crossing Latin America was really fantastic because everyone speaks Spanish and when they don't speak Spanish, they speak Portuguese, which you can mm -hmm. almost understand with Spanish. Right. And in three weeks I could, you know, get a, get after just being there three weeks with Spanish, I could suddenly understand a lot of Portuguese and read it well. And it was, that was fantastic. Um, and then Asia was just exhausting because every few, like it felt like every day the language changed. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how many languages there are in like India and China. Like there's just, there's no one like it. on the other hand, I found that you, you, you do see some things that are common. You, you find out what languages are common across a large area. So I like can know basic phrases in Turkish, Russian, and Chinese, mm -hmm. like very simple things like counting and like, you know, how much is that? Um, and those are, there are these kind of other universal languages or not universal, but widely used languages that are useful across wide areas. Mm -hmm. it, it, I'm not really sure. What to say? It's just just imagining the the journey and and kind of like the vulnerability. What I mean, when you set out, did you intend to make a book out of it, or was that like an afterthought? Like you got back and somebody was like, "You should really write this down." So the book was really it really came about. I I think I was not planning to do it when I started, 
But to me, the experience was just so incredible. And I felt like I had learned so much. Um, and I really felt like there was some really interesting insight was related to climate change, which I've been studying and looking into how mm -hmm. it related to the place I visited. Um, I thought I had a unique story to tell. And so um, that's why I felt like I had to write a book. And it's really, I mean, the trip was just so incredible. It was like partially driven by this desire just to share that mm -hmm. and to explain what it was like to travel by yourself and just be, you know, come to understand two continents on your wheels and meet people and see what the world is like. So how do you, how do you tie that into, I guess, talks with climate change? Like I, on the previous episode before you, I spoke with um, Pavel and he does a thing he refers to as climate run where he goes to kind of far flung places on the planet. Like he did a run in Antarctica and then he comes and does all say tours um, speaking about climate change and then how it relates to the places that he's gone and that kind of stuff. So, so how do you kind of bring your journey back around to that conversation? So I, I, just to even take a step back, I think part of the same thing that drove me to go on these long distance bike tours, is the same thing that drove me interest to study global environmental change, which is really just this fascination with the earth and humans place on it and how okay. we interact. It. Like, I think there was really, you know, a deep intellectual fascination about that, um, that, that started that more so than a concern about human impact. Because uh, I just think it's really, and I think it's super interesting how we're changing the world, uh, how, how we interact with it. And, and a bicycle, it's like you're taking this transect of the world, you're just going across it, and you're just seeing place after place and what it's like there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think when we look at impacts of climate change, we look at how things are doing, it's all very academic. It's all very like, you know, these glaciers will melt this much or we'll lose, this rainforest might be lost or, you know, uh, sea level rise will, will rise like this. And so the idea is you do, you do this transect like that across the continent and just asking a question like, what does climate change mean for this place? And I think that that provides a very interesting perspective, you know, like, like going to this coastline in, in Venezuela and just hanging out with people that live right next to the water and just seeing what their life is like and then saying, okay, well, what does it mean for sea level rise to rise by foot here, you know, or going to ecosystems with the tops of mountains in Colombia. Mm -hmm. And, and I tried my best to meet with experts there. So there's also this, uh, you know, a professor in Colombia take me on a tour at the top of the Paramo ecosystem in Colombia, which is the top of these mountains. And it's absolutely fantastic. And then getting some experience, like what it means for that place. And so there's a richness to the experience um, that makes it a lot more personal, also puts it in context. Mm -hmm. You know, you realize it's not the most important thing ever, even though you realize, you realize it's both more important than you think, and also often not the most important thing in each part of the world. And so that's a nice, so, uh, you know, like there's this huge issues of poverty, like we have to address energy access to people at the same time we solve climate change. Uh, and it, it really made that very personal um, and immediate in a way I felt to, to, to be asking those questions and, and doing so. And so that's what I wanted to convey in the book. And that's what I wanted to communicate is like, look, this is a real thing that's going to affect the real world. And here's how it relates to people and places. I think that's one of the toughest ideas in communicating like the urgency or the importance of climate change is what you touched on is where it may or may not be the most important thing on a micro scale. So, you know, you'll have clusters of people that go, well, it doesn't affect me. So, so what? Right. You know, it, whereas like you and people that have done stuff like you and seen this kind of, 
Sorry. <laughs> um, didn't turn my ringer off. Um, they have seen this kind of train, like transsectional, you know, cut of an entire continent. Um, it gives you a unique perspective to see just, you know, I don't want to say that changing cultures, changing climate, and gives you like an internal sense of it. You know, I, I guess I think about, I should step back and, and say, there's one thing to say, okay, let's look at the numbers. We know the numbers, right? But it's a different thing to, I'll say, feel the numbers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's that's exactly, so right, the, the real challenge is that this bike tour is great for me feeling the numbers, right? Like I got there, I felt it, and I'm like, okay, how do I get other people to, and I, you know, wrote a book. And that, that, if you read that book, you get a sense of it. But really what you should do is you should go out and bike across Latin America yourself. Right. <laughs> you know, like, so, so uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really just trying to communicate that wonder of, and, and our, of, of the world and our connection to it. Yeah. So I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline here. Did you take the trip before or after doing your master's at Stanford? So, so I did my master's and then I worked it with my, my uh, I worked in the, the lab of my um, advisor for a few years before the trip. So I'd been doing all of this work beforehand and that's what kind of motivated me to do it. And then I came back and, and worked for a long time in um, uh, work on climate advocacy and policy. Okay. Okay. And so then now you're, you're working at Global Fishing Watch. So I'll let, instead of me explaining it, I'll let you explain kind of what, what's the mission or purpose of Global Fishing Watch. Um, do you ask me to? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you go ahead and explain okay, it. I, I, was like, I, I so, read about so, it, but so I was like, of, you explain it. You're yeah, right yeah. So Global Fishing Watch, our goal is to monitor all the world's fishing activity using um, big data and satellites. And, and the way I came to this position was actually uh, working um, over a decade ago on increasingly doing more in data science. You know, I, I studied physics and have a strong technical background and um, and there's only, and doing more data science and realizing, you know, that seeing all of this, uh, there's all these new satellites that are being launched that can monitor the earth really well. And there's just this avalanche of new data coming in and realizing that there's this huge opportunity to do environmental data science that would help out how we manage the world's resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing it as a field that was really growing and I wanted to be a part of, and it was the right kind of the right aptitude and, and abilities for it. And so that's where I started, started focusing my work, um, you know, and then, then got connected with, after my wife and I did our trip across Asia, came back and got connected with um, Sky Truth, which is an organization that uses satellite data to do be an environmental watchdog. And so they look at oil spills and other things. And this um, Global Fishing Watch was the most exciting project that they had. Um, and that's what I started working on. So then I worked closely with the researchers to do science. And that was just really exciting being able to do science. And, and the thing that's so exciting about it is that our data for the oceans has been, especially, and especially for fishing, has historically been very poor, mm-hmm. which means there's huge opportunity to improve it and, and do so. And so it's basically this 
you know, direct opportunity to work on how we improve management of two thirds of the world's surface, surface using um, data and, and science. And so that has been incredibly, uh, incredibly fulfilling. Uh, it's not as focused on climate change as, as my previous work has been, um, but I think it's also extremely impactful and high value and a great application of the new kind of big data earth monitoring things. And again, it, it's the same thing, you know, trying to understand at scale how humans are acting with the planet is right. the thing that really fascinates me. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, when we're collecting data about, you know, fish in this case, um, you know, climate change and our effect in other ways can affect that. It's tough to say, you know, even though you guys are monitoring on a global scale, it's also within a niche, right? It's not like you're trying to track all the complexity of the entire system in one model. So it's like you can still take, theoretically, can still take the data that you guys are collecting and hook it up with other data and say, are these correlated? Is there any causation? Um, obviously, causation is much harder to, to prove than just correlation. But um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, even though you say it's not as related, I would still argue in your favor that it is pretty so, related. Yeah. And, and, and what fundamentally we're tracking are people. Mm -hmm. You know, we're tracking our fishing vessels. And that's we're looking at how are people interacting with the planet and, and okay. it is it is that same fundamental question of like how are we doing it and how should we do it and what are the impacts of how we're doing it you know and i think that's the fundamental one of the biggest questions for humanity writ large is how do we man because now we manage the planet you know there's seven soon to be eight billion of us you know taking up a huge fraction of the world's resources how do we do that in an equitable fair way that is also preserves it for the future generations Mm -hmm. and leaves enough nature intact uh, for whatever we think is the right amount of nature to be left intact. Like that, and, and those questions really have to be answered through some type of international cooperation. It can't yeah. be each one for themselves. Yeah, see, I was just getting ready to ask you the, I'll, I'll call it the dumb person question, but I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but just like the, the question of basically, well, if I don't eat fish, why do I care what you do? <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah, it's about that, like stewardship. A billion right? other people eat a lot of fish, right? And you know, hundreds of millions are employed by it. So, and you know, and it's two thirds of the world's surface that are that is taken up by the oceans. I mean, it's it's yeah. part of the world we live on, and and we're you know, you can see this in where we live in a global economy, whether we like it or not, and that's what we have to do. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing I think kind of the cats out of the bag or, or like the genies out of the bottle as far as global commerce goes. Not, but at the same time, I'll get back on track here a second. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of think about that in terms of like, we've had global commerce for hundreds of years, right? Just maybe not as fast as we do it now. So uh, anyway, yeah. um, now I'm trying to think what you were saying. Um, oh, this is a little outside your scope, but you're you're uh, mentioning part of it is figuring out in, in terms of how much nature should we preserve versus um, what humanity can take over. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have thoughts on how we determine that? It's a hard question. That's like so. 
I felt about, you know, the first thing to do is think about like, uh, it's useful to think about this current scale of human impact on the planet. Um, Cause it's really hard for us to think about what our baselines are. You know, most of, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna get the numbers wrong. Um, but a significant portion of the plant matter of the planet is somehow used directly or indirectly for humans. That's like, you know, crops yeah. or, or land is grazed for animals that we eat, or we cut down forests. Um, it's a significant portion. It's lower in the ocean, but it's still high basically through the fish we extract. Uh, and then you can look at how much biomass of things have changed. So, you know, there's been incredible extinctions, more, much, much more so on land than in the ocean that have wiped out, you know, the like the mammoths and there was the, all these extinctions that happened from prehistoric man hunting mm-hmm. um, 10,000 years ago. And then more recently, you know, overall the biomass of land mammals has decreased by a factor of seven, you know, and there's more biomass in cows in domesticated mammals than wild animals. Mm-hmm. You know, the biomass of fish in the ocean has probably of, of non deep water fish, you know, things that we think of as fish has probably dropped by about half because of human, because of fishing and human activity. So we've, we've really dramatically changed the world. And if we want to support civilization, which I think we do, we're going to have to leave it largely incredibly changed. And the question is how much, but I think we all find a lot of value out of um, leaving parts of it as, as kind of natural and wild as it can be. And that's kind of what this push right now is for, for marine protected areas in the ocean and protected areas on land. Um, you know, part of it is to, protect biodiversity and services for, for humans. Part of it is to like just preserve nature um, for its own sake. And I think there's an interesting question right now, the debate in the ocean is how much do we set aside and, um, and where should that be? And there's a strong, and there seems to be consensus that we should be setting aside, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30%, sometimes maybe more, some people say less of the ocean for nature. And uh, you know, and, and, and so now that there's a lot, now the discussion is over which parts of the ocean and why. Mm-hmm. And then who gets claims to it, who can use it, like, exactly. it, it goes even deeper than that. Um, exactly. While I was speaking with uh, Pavel about climate change, we were talking about the, the approach to changing our habits as individuals and as cultures across the globe thinking about you know we can make and i've spoken with uh, another person kind of indirectly working on climate change she does uh, research in nanoplastics and their effect on the ocean and we spoke about kind of individual responsibility so thinking about that what i spoke with pavel about was um the difference between taking an approach and changing our behavior to sustain what we're doing, so sustainability, versus the idea of changing our behavior so that it actually has a positive impact, and instead of decline, we actually get things going back in the other direction. So like right now, you mentioned um, the reduction in biomass, both on land and in the oceans. So instead of just saying, okay, this is our floor, let's just try to stay here, like, what can we do to actually grow the biomass and, you know, make it increase? Um, so I'm kind of curious what you've experienced or your thoughts on our our need to change behaviors. What behaviors can we change? 
is it more important to um, make a stop before changing directions or can we just make a sharp turn and you know kind of go in a positive direction from here so there's some good news from the ocean um, where a lot of fisheries are actually recovering um, the, the ocean the oceans are very big and you hear bad stories about how fisheries are doing and that's not the right story because the right story is hard to tell and the right story is that there's lots and lots of different fisheries and some are well managed and some are poorly managed mm -hmm. um, and some of the ones are well managed have been historically overfished but people have figured out what to do and so they're fishing at a lower level and now the biomass is increasing in those places um, and so we know that's possible a more interesting question is um, you know do we want to be extracting the maximum amount of fish as we can or do we want to have a surplus of, of fish for, for natural state or having more? Because when you're fishing at, at your, the, when you know, the sustainably fished fishery has half, about half the bio, fish biomass in it as a wild fishery. And the reason for that is that you're, you know, you're taking fish out as, as soon as they're ready to be eaten. More or less, mm -hmm. you can think about that. You know, you don't let a, when you're, when you have a herd of cattle, you don't let them live to be nine years. You take them when they're two to harvest them. Right. You know, and it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's the idea that you wouldn't. Um, so the, the structure of the population looks different. It's not a wild, it's, it's this, you know, it's farmed in some sense, although it is also wild. And so the question is, is that what we want? You know, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of places that is what we want because we want to produce a lot of food for people because that's what we need as civilization. But in some places we, you know, it's, it's a hard balance. And I think that um, it's really hard to, to, to figure out what we should actually be fishing for in the ocean for those and it really comes down to values yeah well and that's the tough part right is that we have even if we say just let's confine our debate to the u.s we have conflicting values in terms of what we should eat how much we should eat of it you know i i, I recall having this conversation with a friend in college um so i was a college athlete i ran which means I have higher protein needs than just average Joe going to class, not working out. But she was very adamant that I only needed, you know, 30 grams of protein a day or whatever the average person should need. So it's like, not only is there a, was there a kind of clash of values cause she was a vegetarian. Um, but also like there's education, like, uh, um, what do I want to say? Not a dichotomy, but a split in education there where it's like, I know I need more because of the demands I'm placing on myself. So it's like, how do you have, you know, how do you come to a consensus, even in a relatively homogenous culture as the U.S. compared to, you know, the U.S. versus the inhabitants of China versus India, where there's conflicting cultural and like socioeconomic values? Well, it's uh, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you know, it's like come on, David, give me the answers. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think uh, you got to. I want to throw in another thing there, which for the fishing thing that's tricky is the the uh, economic, which is that you have lots of fishermen and fisherwomen who who uh, you know the the maximum employment. Like if your job is to maximize jobs, and and you know, then it's actually overfishing. It's, it's, it's the, it puts the ecosystem in a bad place, but you have more people have jobs. And so you fix the ecosystem, people lose their job. Mm -hmm. And that's a real problem. And that's something that we should care about. Uh, and it's hard. 
Um, but in terms of what to do, you know, I think that there's there are some social norms I think could be changing. Um, I think I think technology is going to have to be a, a bigger role. You know, I think we're seeing this with meatless meat. Uh, it's actually quite good in a lot of cases, and I think the technology for that will increase. Um, and so then you'll be able to produce more meat with less with fewer inputs. Um, so as our hour is kind of winding down, um, there's a question I'm asking everybody this season or this year of the show. Um, we'll jump back into sport. And basically, I'm asking everybody, uh, what do you think the purpose of sport is? So I think there's two purposes of sport. Um, so one thing I, we didn't get into is I, I played ultimate Frisbee in college and I was actually a co-captain of the, uh, 2002 national championship, uh, team at Stanford, Okay. which was, uh, you know, and, and there's like, uh, which was an incredible experience. It was a whole other discussion, uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, there's this, there's this competition element of it, which is fun and it's fun to win and it's fun to, to try to win. And even though if you don't win, it's still fun. It's fun to strive and try to be better and compete. Mm -hmm. And that's really fun. Uh, and then there's this other element of it, which is just the exercise element, which is what I think a lot of the bike touring I'm doing too. It's just kind of to, to use your body and feel alive and just like, it makes you feel very good. So I think, I don't think you can summar, summarize the, what's the purpose of the sport into one thing. I think there's lots of purposes. And I think that you'll find that it's different for the different activities um, and depending on the goals. David, if people want to kind of see what you're up to, maybe see the research with Global Fishing Watch, where can they kind of keep up with you and, and what's going on? So globalfishingwatch.org, you can um, go to us there. We'll have a, that, you know, there's an interactive map you can look on there. There's also a page. I run the research program there. You can see all uh, tons of tons of papers we've been publishing and we have an exciting one coming up very soon showing some widespread illegal fishing that I, I, I can't talk about until it's released, but I will give you that teaser uh, to check in soon. And um, so that's the best place to do so. I also have a website, rideforclimate.com. Uh, uh, I haven't been updating too much recently, but that's where information about the book is um, that you can get on um, from any, any, any seller, online seller. Sounds good. Well, hopefully we'll we'll see kind of what you're up to with the uh, illegal fishing here soon. So yeah. everybody check that out. We say globalfishingwatch.org, correct? That's correct. All right. Thanks for spending time with me today, David. All right. Thank you, Jesse.